can't believe these people are like astronomers. <laughs> they, d- they can't even do GCSE basic maths. Okay, I will definitely cut that out. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. We are recording this on the 5th of August and we are here to tell you all about everything moon related. My name is Andy, the self-appointed moon expert, and on this show we are going to be talking about Jeffrey Bezos going to space and hoping to throw his cowboy hat back into the race to get to the moon. We're going to be talking about a latest study about how the moon's orbit is going to affect coastal flooding, or as the papers will put it, wobbling moon will doom us all. We are then going to have a little bit of very local moon news from our favourite town, Moon Township. We are going to follow up with the biggest news probably to our little channel, which is that N3 has found a moon, and we've got some follow-up on that. We'll also talk about water plumes from icy moon of Enceladus show promising signs of life. This is based on a new study that has just come out recently. A new proposal for a study or a more more of an argument for why we should go back to Triton, the biggest moon of Neptune. And for the first time ever, the birth of a moon has been witnessed. What a headline and it's probably not as painful as it sounds. And of course, we're going to be talking about and the next moon is, which in this case is the Jovian moon of Ilara. But as always, I'm doing this podcast with my co-host, Rick, who is the everyman who will ask everyman questions. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Andy. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. It's, it's, been a, it's been a while since we've, uh, since we've spoken. Uh, yes, yeah. What have we been doing? Well, you've been swapping jobs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, working on videos and getting up to speed with the job that I swapped a couple of months ago. Uh, so, And also just taking a bit of a break from the podcast because I didn't want it to turn into a chore because I still want it to be fun. So that's why we haven't been, had an episode out recently, just so we can kind of keep it a little bit fresh and a little bit more bouncy and rather than, oh, God, here's some more moon news. But yeah, what have you been up to since we've last spoken? Yeah, I just pick you up on I'm swapping jobs in that I've actually I've got a job. I went from unemployed to employed, which I think is less job swapping. Uh, yes. uh, more just getting a job. <laughs> uh, so so now I can actually pay my bills, which is quite nice. What have I been doing in the last month that's interesting? Oh, well, you probably noticed that uh, from the sound of my last podcast, I was on Ubuntu 18.0, but now I'm on Ubuntu 20.0, and the screen's an inch smaller. Yes, that's right. I've got a new laptop, Andy. (laughs) Yeah, I can hear the difference in screen size. (laughs) Absolutely. The echo from bouncing back onto the microphone. There will be some Linux fans who can absolutely pick up on that. Oh, they'll be like, no, that's quintessential 20.0, your Ubuntu. Yeah, but uh, no, it's quite an impressive laptop swapping as well, because over the June, I got a few error messages popping up every so on saying, critical system error, can we send a report to, I don't know, Linux, Torvalds, or whoever? <laughs> Just, can we send a report to a mysterious cloud? It's like, yeah, right, go on. Then. These error reports, they didn't stop the computer. They just sort of, you press OK, and then it carries on. But they, like, became more and more frequent, 
because it was like once every week and then moved up to like once every day and then once every few hours. You know, like when sonar goes off in a film and something's closing in. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was these error reports kept going. And so to the point where one Sunday morning I was thinking, this is, this is silly, right? I'll take a backup of my system and I'll go and order a new laptop just in case. And as soon as the confirmation came in saying, you've got a new laptop. And I went, well, that's good because, uh, you know, that's going to arrive on Tuesday. Basically, the computer just crashed at that point. (laughs) That was spooky timing. Yeah, it might be complete coincidence or it might be some clever newfangled marketing scheme. Well, yeah, that's actually what I was thinking when when you were saying that I was getting error messages every hour. Uh, That's pretty much what's happening to me with adware on my computer every time I log in. Because I've got all the free antivirus stuff that'll be like, oh, oh, we've got this amazing (laughs) deal, 97% off. It's like, that's that's so good. Yeah, but the free one does everything that I need and then some. So I don't really need the premium stuff. And I think people just cave and say, oh, I'm so sick of these adverts. I'll just pay for it. Yeah, and also, usually it's the you have a look at the features of the free one and the premium one and the premium one is like you can use this over a network with synchronous backups with an enterprise license of 25 users per seat per virtual machine on a microchip that's virtualized <laughs> and you're just thinking I, I i couldn't use that feature even if i tried yeah <laughs> i'm just one person with one machine and what have you been up to andy um just uh working on the videos as always um i released that new one about uh, N3's new moon discovery, which we'll come to in a bit, um, and also how to find a moon. So I turned that into a video. Sorry, we're not going to talk about that one, though, because it is a whole process, but I did see that and go, oh, flipping out, that's good. That's something I'm going to have to go back to a few times to try and work out what to do. I would start with something like the Voyager images, because the stars are a little easier to kind of align than the ones from the huge ground-based telescopes. Because I managed to go through the old Voyager images and discover, not discover, but find moons against them because you'd line up the stars over several images and make them a little bit transparent so you can kind of see through them in layers and then you'd see like a line where the moon would be orbiting. So I managed to like kind of recreate the findings of a paper. So they'd be like, okay, we found a moon on images taken on this day. So I'll get those images and try to find the moon in them. And it's harder than you think, but a lot easier than the images that N3 was using, the Subaru telescope one. So uh, I'd start with those if you were going to try anything. <laughs> Are these like the, the tester trial level one images? Like where's Wally tester sort of thing? <laughs> Where it's just, just Wally on his own, perhaps a little bit behind a wall. Well, it's Wally, but there's 10 people. And then the final level is like, Wally goes to the barber pole factory. Like, oh, yeah, no. well... <laughs> Well, there's Wally. Um, I'm looking up to my Where's Wally books in my collection. There's Wally goes to the land of Wallies um, in one of them, and the genuine Wally I think is the one without a right shoe. What? So yeah, you have to look for uh, a Wally without a shoe. <sighs> I do remember one, the Wally, it was like, oh, he's he's got a jumper that's white with red stripes, whereas everyone else had one that was red with white stripes. And it, his particular jersey, the first stripe was red, and everyone else's was white. But it's <laughs> damn near impossible. I don't think even an AI could find it. I remember that. Oh, sorry, um, going back to the one where he doesn't have a shoe, it says, you know, and when you found him, now go and find the shoe in the picture as well. <laughs> <laughs> so. And it'll be somewhere like on a cloud. 
Or it was on another Wally who was actually wearing two <laughs> shoes if you look carefully enough or something. But one was like one Pantone shade of brown lighter than the other. Yeah, it would be something like that. Uh, yeah, that's essentially what moon hunting is. Trying to find Wally but amongst the stars. If you've not seen the, the moon hunting stuff, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Find a moving dot on other dots, some of which are probably not moving and they're called stars, some of which are moving but very fast and they're called asteroids or meteorites. But you want to get the the right amount of movement on a very grainy picture and some things are just random pixels that have been badly encoded. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. It is pretty difficult. I had a brilliant segue that I thought of, so I'm going to use it now. And speaking of Wally's Amongst the Stars, that brings us to our first item, which is... Jeffrey Bezos went to space. Hey, did he though? Well, I've put in the show notes, he is a cowboy space passenger. He got on a rocket that he didn't build, and while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin didn't necessarily build Apollo 11, they were test pilots and they were still at the height of their game, and I, I would warrant the title of astronauts and explorers for them. Whereas Jeffrey Bezos sat in a chair while everyone else did the work for him, and then he went up into space, floated for about 15 minutes, and then came back down to Earth. Yeah, it, it does somewhat ruin it. Do you, does he have to do like special training? Because obviously like, astronauts do a hell of a lot of training in case every single thing you know goes wrong and they have to land without parachutes or they have to jimmy a, a, a new fuse out of a paperclip or something. Whereas did he do any training or did he go up and he has the same amount of credit as though I got on a train and went from Oxford to Manchester or something <laughs> as the train, the train driver who is also qualified and the engineer that built the train it's as though I'm magic because I walked on a thing I sat down the thing moved and then it stopped and then I got off uh yeah that's pretty much it he was a cowboy space passenger he took his hat sat down went up into space floated about bit and came back down he didn't have to do any training i don't think obviously the health and safety thing of okay maybe you need to put your head between your legs in case things go into a bit of a panic on the way down i don't i think there must have been someone who was like a technician on board who could actually save their lives if something went wrong but i don't think he went through the rigorous months of training that other astronauts do considering he went up with a 13 year old who took the place of his dad who couldn't make it because he won the seat in an auction and paid than like 80 million or something insane for this seat and he couldn't make it so his son went instead and hopefully the teenager uses this as a wonderful opportunity uh, and an inspiration to be like hey that was amazing i'm going to study the stars and study space travel more so hopefully that will happen were they on their phone throughout (laughs) sort of texting their mate oh jeff i can't get a signal can you hold this up to your window please but anyway the reason why we're talking about jeff bezos is because coming back from his space travels and giddy on astronaut fever, he's thought, you know what, I'm going to throw my hat back into the ring and I'm going to knock $2 billion off the $2.9 billion I was going to charge you to put people on the moon. So in April of 2021, NASA awarded a $2.9 billion contract to Elon Musk rejecting Jeffrey Bezos's company Blue Origin, which is the one that he went up in recently. And he said, I'll knock two billion off it, so if you will consider me again, which is... (laughs) 
It's like a market trader. Yeah. He's lost a sale of oranges to his rival. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll just knock the price down. Here we go. Off to the moon. And Well, he also, <laughs> I think he sued, uh, oh, I'm not sure if it was like as damning as a lawsuit, but he, he very much complained like, oh, well, you moved the goalposts. You said that, oh, you wanted this whole system by this particular time, but then now you've changed what you wanted. It's like, well, that's what space travel is. That's what policy is. Like, it's ever-changing based on what government's in power. NASA asked for 3.3 billion to get uh, just a working lunar gateway, but they only received 850 million. Only 850 million. That's that's uh, still an extravagant amount of money. But he's saying like, oh, well, I'll knock 2 billion off. You just need to pay me 900 million. So more than what they already have. <laughs> it does. I mean, he's got billions. So the fact that he can knock 2 billion off does beg the question, why don't you just knock, knock the other 0.9 billion off? Yes, that's a good point. Like I did a quick back of the envelope calculation before. Amazon has 1.3 million workers. And if you divide that 2 billion amongst them, that comes to a one-off bonus of $1,500 per employee. Just do that. You'll make yeah. you'll make a lot of people happier, and only do it for like the minimum wage workers as well. Don't do it for the ones in the corporate board. You save even more. Yeah, no, that that's not exciting enough, and it doesn't doesn't put him in a history book. Well, he's already in the history book of being the richest man alive, official richest man alive. I think the unofficial richest man alive is Putin, but that's impossible to actually prove. But I think there's some rumours going around that he is unofficially the world's most richest man. But yeah, Jeffrey Bezos made history by being the richest man alive, or the richest man in the world, overtaking Bill Gates, I think. Was Bill Gates ever the richest man in the world? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's overtaking him. So there you go, that's your place in the history books. Just just leave it at that, Jeff. But yeah, he, he wrote to the head of NASA and saying, Blue Origin will bridge the HLS, which is the Human Landing System budgetary fund, shortfall by waiving all payments in the current and next two government fiscal years of up to $200 billion to get the program back on track right now. But it's already steaming ahead of schedule because they wanted it by, well, yeah, they wanted it by 2024 and they've already cut out a load of steps to try and get something up there in time and boots on the ground even though they're saying this is more than a boots on ground mission but at the way they've got three years to do this to get the deadline of 2024 which i don't believe for a second they're going to meet now i think in our little betting book you said they're not going to make it and i was nice and naive and optimistic being like oh yeah they'll get there no i don't believe this for a second anymore they're not going to get there <laughs> well trump's out of office so uh because it did seem to be a vanity mission for him yes that's true. And I don't think Biden cares, which is good, really, because it kind of like lets the experts do what they do best without having someone breathing down their neck being like, have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? I want to play with my new toy. Have you done it yet? So it's it's good that that pressure's off. Are you saying Trump's not an expert? Uh, did you not see how he handled the uh, coronavirus and suggested people use bleach? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, you saw that clip, but it was like... Oh, yes. What was embarrassing about it was not so much the bleach or perhaps we could use disinfectant or whatever he said. It's the idea that these scientists needed his help. It was the idea that they were completely devoid of ideas. Just They'd been sat there for months just going, if only we had some sort of inspiration, an idea. You know, we've got the budget, but we just, we just don't know what to use or what to experiment. <laughs> we've studied all these different types of ways of creating vaccines and medicines and all sorts for years and we've got hundreds of us all communicating around a common goal but we're just all out of ideas <laughs> if only some leader could just 
suggests something to us. But we're all just sat around flicking lit splints at each other <laughs> like a GCSE science lesson because we're so bored and we've just run out of any idea of what to do. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I very much don't miss waking up to just a BBC News alert on my phone or some headline of being like, what horrendous thing has he said now or done now or endorsed now or what <laughs> crime is he alleged to have accused of doing this week? And I really don't miss it. And I, I like the fact that I've got no idea what Joe Biden's doing, no idea what his current policy is, no idea what rally he's doing or what his progress in office is. I'm blissfully ignorant and I'm very happy about it. Yeah, so it, it's very good that it's now America's turn to laugh at us for the quality of our leadership. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, where we wake up in the morning and it's a British leader that's going through a scandal. That's what we want. Uh, none of these foreign scandals. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Such as the <laughs> health secretary telling everyone to uh, distance and then cuddling up to one of his aides in a, an office. In a nice British political scumbag. Salt, salt of the earth are our British political scumbags, unlike those disgusting, fat American political scumbags. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think got, we've got off topic from Yeah, we, ha we have a bit, but I, I think we've covered all we want to say that, yeah. yeah, Jeffrey Bezos, you're not an astronaut, no matter how much money you throw at it. I'm pretty sure NASA will appreciate the two billion off, but they've already gone with Elon Musk, so... So, on to the next bit of news, and you may have seen several headlines about this, some a bit more scientific than others. The official press release from NASA was, Study projects a surge in coastal flooding starting in the 2030s, but most newspapers and news outlets tend to go with, Wobbling Moon will doom us all! And this was a study done by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration also known as NOAA N-O-A-A and they have done a study into rising tides and it predicted that because of the influence of the moon tides will cause excess flooding in the 2030s. Now this is because the wobbling moon has a wobbling cycle that lasts 18.6. And when I say wobbling, it's not looking up at the moon and it's going wobble, 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 side by side, like it's some big plate of celestial jelly. I think it's like an axial tilt. I've actually tried to get a concrete answer on this and it was just a case of, oh, it's an 18.6 year cycle. It, it seemed to be either ridiculously scientific or annoyingly vague. So there was hardly a middle ground, but from what I can tell, the moon orbits the Earth on a slight angle of about 5.1 to the plane of our own orbit around the sun. So imagine the plane of orbit of the Earth going around the sun is a circle. The moon orbits that plane at about 5.1 degrees. And because of the influence of the sun and the influence of the Earth and the position of the moon, but like between the two and then on the other side of the Earth, it actually has its own wobble, this, which is caused by the gravitational effects of the sun and the earth and probably some of the other planets as well like jupiter will have an influence on it uh, as well even small but enough to actually affect it so it has this predictable cycle of 18.6 years when it will get closer further away a bit higher in the sky a bit lower in the sky and this will affect the tides and this wobble was actually discovered in 1700s let me get the exact year in 1728 sorry 1728 yeah 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 
Imagine being that person, say, I tell you what, that moon's wobbling. (laughs) Over the next 18.6 years, just watch. Just no, Steve, just watch for 18.6 years. Would they have been alive to see it then? Because... What, the moon? No, there were people like, alive in some... Well, no, no one was alive back then. <laughs> no, I mean, what was the life expectancy of in in forty five years? Let's say fifty years. So yeah, you've got two of these wobbles, of which let's say from ages like naught to eighteen, you're not interested in the moon's wobble, or don't have the scientific knowledge to kind of comprehend it. Yeah, or you're just fighting off cholera, and tuberculosis, <laughs> and Dickensian kidnappers who are trying to sh- Shanghai you onto an <laughs> East India Company ship. Uh, yes, that exactly. Or we've got a continent to go and discover. I've got some Americans to annoy. Come on, British. Okay, so life expectancy of 50. Say, like, you start studying this at age 25. So you might be able to see one of these cycles. But it was discovered then, and I think they based it on the effects of the tides, because they probably started documenting the tides meticulously over these years. Oh, yeah. Anything to do with the sea was meticulously documented during that time, because that's that's how we ran our sort of empire. Yeah. With ships going everywhere. So, yeah, basically anything to do with the sea was like, yeah, let's record it. How many fish? <laughs> Where's that star? Where's that moon? Where's that, you know, because all of this leads to us being able to conquer places easier, inadvertently develop scientific knowledge as well. Well, yeah, pr- pretty much. So this is when the moon wobble was discovered. So why in 2030 is, it, is this going to be an issue? Why now is this going to start flooding? Well, it's due to the rapid acceleration of climate change and the fact that sea levels are indeed rising, because I think we're about to enter the high tide element of this 18.6 year cycle. And the last time it was at a high tide point, which was, I think, nine years ago, sea levels were just on the cusp of it and occasionally did flood because of this moon wobble effect. But in nine to ten years from now, this is going to be a real issue because sea levels are predicted to be higher by then. More glaciers will have melted, not necessarily the polar ice caps, but certainly glaciers, and there will be higher sea levels because of this. And there's other factors at play like uh, El Nio and I think there's uh, other astronomical cycles that do affect the tides and it'll all just like culminate in pretty bad floodings. Now, this isn't like the ones that happened in Germany recently that just completely decimated towns. These are more like nuisance floods where it will burst a riverbanks and kind of like flood a car park, a couple of shops and whatnot. But the problem is it'll happen on like a weekly basis as opposed to just once or twice every couple of months. And if it keeps happening 10 to 15 times a month, that is going to ruin businesses. That is going to cripple economies on coastlines as well. So this is going to become a huge issue and it's only going to get worse every 18 years from this point on. And it's not just the moon to blame. It's always going to be there, always rotating (laughs) around. It's mostly climate change that is to blame for this. Yeah, let's let's be fair. It's it is climate change. I think to turn (laughs) round to turn round and blame the moon, who has. uh, faithfully looked after our ties for a good many uh, millennia. Yeah, I think it's climate change, let's be honest. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some climate change de- deniers who uh, blame the moon. <laughs> oh, yeah. only, <laughs> only now, in the last nine years, have we angered the moon enough for it to be like, you know yeah. what, mate? I'm going to get 100,000 kilometres closer to you just to screw you over and flood your patio, Dickens. 
Don't know why Dickens came to my mind. Oh, it's because you mentioned Dickensian before. That's Dickensian, why. <laughs> so before we move on to more moon news, I have some very local moon news for you. Ooh, is this from Moon Township, Pennsylvania, or Tennessee, or Wisconsin? Uh, it is from Moon Township, Pennsylvania. I have been looking at other ones, but it seems to be Killers of the Flower Moon is dominating the Oklahoma news. And the only one I could find for Wisconsin was more updates from Doyle's Moon Saloon, who have won, like, a volleyball championship recently, so good for them. <laughs> as, as saloons do. I think they've never really expressed or emphasised the volleyball aspect to the saloon in cowboy films. Well, that's what the good, the bad, and the ugly is entirely based on. You've got the good player, the bad player, and the ugly referee. Yeah, I, I don't remember the volleyball bit, but it's been a while since I've watched it. But... Oh, speaking, speaking of westerns, I'm reading a book at the moment called Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, who did No Country for Old Men and The Road. And it is one of the most violent books I've ever read. But it's also quite slow-paced, a bit like Lord of the Rings, where there's a lot of detail of, and they went across this land landscape and then they fell asleep and then it was cold and nice but then they got up and then they carried on riding and there's a lot of like talk about travel in Lord of the Rings and while reading it you know that episode of The Simpsons when Poochie comes into the episode of Itchy and Scratchy and they're like oh we're going to the fireworks factory and then they're like oh when are they gonna get to the fireworks factory I want to see them in the fireworks factory blowing stuff up when reading this book out of a 30-page chapter, I'm on page 20 being like, oh, they've been in this desert for ages. When are they going to get to the fireworks factory? And then there's like a confrontation with the Apache natives or something like that. And it's so horrendously violent and over the top. It makes you immediately regret, I wish we didn't go to the fireworks factory. <laughs> this was... <laughs> I regret complaining. I'm sorry, Cormac. Tell me more about this desert. <laughs> it was all fun in the fireworks factory till a Roman candle took someone's eye out <laughs> let me uh, yeah let me explain in graphic detail the eye coming out by a roman candle it's well it's actually not graphic detail it's very matter of fact mm. if not slightly poetic so for example someone will look over to help someone but an arrow will be through their chest and the feathers of the arrows will be poking out but then it just goes into very gruesome events but in matter-of-fact detail, it's almost like a like a lab report, which makes it even like harder to deal with. Because if it's something like, I don't know, American Psycho, where the whole point of the book is to be disgusted by it, mm. then you're like, okay, I can kind of get where this is coming. But the fact that you have to picture it with just these very bare sentences, I don't know, kind of lends itself to the stark reality of what's going on. It's very good book, not one for mothers. Okay, right. Uh, anyway, back to the, the Moon Bake Off in Moon Township, Pennsylvania. And this was a press release for, from the Moon Township Public Library where families with kids in grades 0 to 6, that's ages 5 to 12, can now compete in the best baking video with their recipe featured in an upcoming cookbook. So the idea is make a cake. Uh, tell us the recipe and the best one will be chosen and the winner will be chosen on the following criteria creativity flavors chosen and presentation now i would argue creativity and presentation kind of fall into the same bracket and flavors chosen but if you can't actually taste it how do you know if the flavors chosen pay off it's interesting i i think you can have creativity without presentation in fact, I would. I think it'd be more creative to do that. Like have this incredibly flamboyant cake, 
but deliver it in an incredibly deadpan, monotone way. Getting someone like John Nettles or Stephen Fry with a very, very soft, delicate voice to narrate it. Yeah. I actually think the juxtaposition of that would work very well. So, um, yeah, I think they really not put enough effort into the uh, kiddies cake baking competition <laughs> and the marking criteria. Because if any of them are like Jeff Bezos, they will, they will sue for moving the goalposts and uh, <laughs> the marking criteria will be, will be bad. I think the question everyone wants to know, though, is because it's a, a competition for kids, are you going to enter it, Andy? <laughs> Bear in mind that's what you did with the moon naming. The back of my mind was, I really hope Rick doesn't point out that it's a competition for children and that I invented and won stuff in the past. Uh, yeah, well done for calling me out and putting me in my place. And <laughs> I shall not be entering this, uh, mostly because I can't bake very well. I can cook well compared to the average Brit but I can bake by following the instructions, but I'm not bake-off worthy or uh, a pioneer when it comes to baking. Can you bake stuff? I can definitely put stuff in the oven and take it out 20 minutes later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very, very good at that. Uh. <laughs> well, most recipes for cooking just allows that kind of like wiggle room because they say that cooking is an art, but baking is a science, and you have to get it absolutely spot on. Yeah, to me, that's far too much effort when you can also just buy a cake from the shop that, because of mass production, is actually cheaper than if you went out and bought all the raw ingredients. <laughs> so Anyway, uh, I won't be entering this competition for children. Okay, it, although will you be reprising your um, five-year-old, which is basically you speaking normally, but then you pitch-bend it at the end of this uh, podcast and just read out a random recipe you find off the internet? Well, you'll have to wait until the end of the episode to find out. I can't wait. And now we go on to foreign moon news. This is where we talk about moons belonging to other planets of the solar system. And the biggest news, and I knew this was going to happen eventually, and that is our own N3 has gone and found a moon. Hey, well done, N3. Uh, can you just explain why is our legally our N3 and no one else's? <laughs> Well, this is fan of the Lunatic channel and someone who has been very helpful with past episodes of the podcast and also through helping me with some of the videos and pointed out the sources of where I can go and find the raw images of moons and uh, gave me a run through of their methods ages ago. And then when I put the, together the video recently of how to find a moon, they checked the script with me, talked through their methods and they share their findings on the Discord. Like every time they recover a moon, so a lost moon of Jupiter, this is one where it was originally spotted and then when they went back to take a photo of it or where it should be based on the calculations of the orbit, they couldn't find it. Well, N3 has gone and recovered this moon in, in other photographs taken on other nights, as well as discovered certain asteroids as well. But the biggest news is that they discovered a moon and they did this by plotting out the positions of all the known moons of Jupiter onto a huge map of the sky and then looking in the areas close to Jupiter that didn't seem to have any moons there. And lo and behold, they found a moon by flicking between images and using the stars as references. And there are loads and loads of images on the Discord server that are evidence of between these stars, you can see a moon moving along. So N3 went away and submitted this to the MPC and then announced their finding on Twitter. Quick one, Andy, what's the MPC? Oh, Minor Planet Center. They're kind of like the official checkers of submission. So you usually, if you're like, oh, I think I saw an asteroid, 
okay, where? Give us the orbital details and we'll go away and check your findings. It's a bit kind of like a, an open exam where here is my maths, go check it. <laughs> yep, that looks all correct. And then you can, they'll release a statement. So N3 submitted their findings to the MPC and usually the turnaround time is a couple of weeks, but it had been, it's still not been confirmed that this is indeed a moon and it's been over a month now. It's been a long, long time. And then they released this statement saying, good work digging out the moon from the archival data. However, the MPC has a large archive of unpublished measurements. Observations of natural satellites were generally handled in a disorganized fashion in the early 2000s. Color me shocked, they're still pretty disorganized now. And many isolated natural satellite tracklets are therefore not in the publicly visible isolated tracklet file. So basically all the, hey, we think we found a moon 20 years ago are not visible in the records. So as far as N3 was concerned, this moon was not discovered. As far as the public are aware, this moon has not been discovered. But it turns out behind the scenes, it had been discovered, just not announced. And this is incredibly frustrating because had N3 known before this, I think they would have spent a lot more effort searching other parts of the Jovian sky trying to find a moon there instead of focusing a lot of effort in a relatively sparse area which is where they found the moon but it turns out it had already been discovered but there was no record of it up until this time so as far as i'm concerned n3 has discovered a moon because they had the common sense and the diligence and the drive to go through all of these old photos and put two and two together and go look there is a moon here i have found it give me the credit yeah absolutely it's sort of an independent discovery but yes it's, it's very disappointing that the mpc are uh, haven't released the previous tracks and it's only i don't know it seems to be one of those things of i don't know if i went to the patent office and said here's my million pound idea and they go oh yeah yeah we've already got one of them definitely yeah yeah, yeah. oh here it is it's a photocopy of what you've just given us <laughs> sort of <laughs> I don't know, it's, it seems kind of under, underwhelming. It's like, no, you can't just pretend you haven't seen it or you have seen it before, but then you've made no illusions to it so far. Yeah, it's, uh... especially when credit will go to the original discoverers, who will probably be either Brett Gladman or Scott Shepard, who have a trillion moons between them. Yes, that's it. I'm tempted to send off lots of pictures of Jupiter and then just draw random lines and say, oh, I found a moon here. And then <laughs> in, in 100 years, some of them might come good and uh, I'll have discovered a moon. Are you planning on DDoSing yeah. the uh, yeah. just, just <laughs> every, NPC? Every combination of like um, XY coordinate, I'll just say, yeah, there's a moon there. To the NPC's credit, though, this has been like a wake-up call for them, and they're saying we're currently working on some significant improvements to the organisation when processing natural satellites. It therefore might be a while before we designate the satellite as we want to make sure all the relevant measurements are taken into account. Our goal is to have all isolated natural satellite tracklets in the ITF, which is the isolated tracklet file within the next couple of months. So they are taking steps to rectify this. I just hope N3 gets the credit they deserve for this, or at least partial credit and a name on the NPEC, which is Moon Discovered Here. This story has been picked up by some of the big news outlets of the astronomical community, such as Sky and Telescope Magazine and Space.com. So N3 is getting some recognition for it, which is, well, more than deserved. It would just be lovely to have that official stamp that said, yes, this is a moon. I don't know, it seems a bit weird and suspicious that the, the NPC is, oh, 
we've we've had this backlog from 2003 things were handled in a disorganized fashion as though you know and letter comes in they just throw it in the air and go oh can't <laughs> sort of like it, chuck it on the moon pile yeah that's it you know Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money bin it's like <laughs> I just imagine the MPC swimming in these moon submissions go well, we've got a lot of submissions here we really should process them but anyway I've swum in them so I can't know which one came in first but they're going to get it sorted out in two months <laughs> I'm just what were you doing otherwise like if it only took two months worth of work it's what was going on or knit down the temp agency and get loads of data entry monkeys lots of like grad students who are unemployed and say right you lot this is how you type in moon um, orbits into a computer grab a bit of paper off you go and once you've done it get the next piece of paper and keep going try not to make a mistake or you'll annoy future astronomers anyway <laughs> off you go earn your minimum wage i am also aware though that it is probably a lot more complicated than <laughs> we we're making it out to be and they, they, these are meant to be like light jibes uh yeah. with some frustration there uh yeah i mean if you, if you are from the npc and want to respond that'd be great and we can make a, a funky video yeah of- and if you're annoyed by it please tell us and we will apologize for anything that was just wildly out of order yeah if you're not actually swimming in all these submissions but you are using them as um i don't know paperweights then let us know and then we will correct the record uh yes it, it will take us two months to do so and now on to the next piece of foreign moon news, and that is water plumes from Saturn's icy moon of Enceladus may show promising signs of life. Now, Enceladus, with its cryovolcanoes and plumes of water, have always been in the Astro News, and it's always been suspected that there'll be life there, because if you look at the bottom of Earth's oceans with the hydrothermal vents pumping out warm water, there's all sorts of weird creatures down there. And clearly this is happening on Enceladus with the hydro vents beneath the icy surface in the subsurface ocean, causing this churning that's causing these cryovolcanoes to fling a bunch of stuff up into space. So it's always been hypothesized, but now studies have been done that mathematically model and simulate life on these subsurface oceans and are the ingredients there for life to live? When I say ingredients, the right elements. And if these particular life forms live there, what are they expiring? What are they pumping out? And does this line up with what we have measured around Enceladus through the Cassini missions? So what they did, they had a simulation and they took one of the plausible compositions and temperature values of both Enceladus's ocean and fluid released from the hydrothermal vents and ran a mathematical model to see what kind of aquatic environment it forms. The, the, the microbes they simulated were something called methanogens, and I think these are something that consume methane or kick out methane. Pretty sure they consume methane. So they introduced several breeds of these methanogens population into Enceladus's simulated hydrothermal environments. That's at the bottom of the subsurface ocean. And then they changed some of the variables of the, uh, like how hot it would be and what elements are around for these microbes to use as food. And out of the 50,000 simulations that they run, 32 were habitable and allowed the methogens to thrive while 68% didn't. But 33% of these 50,000 environments 
allowed methanogens to exist like they do here on Earth, but in Enceladus's oceans. So they modeled the subsurface ocean and were like, okay, these microbes could live there, but if they're expiring, they're taking in these things and breaking down certain molecules and elements, what are they kicking out? What are they breathing out? And how would that affect the surface ocean? Because you know how you have like, when a pond gets life, it gets covered in algae, and then that affects the how the pond looks and also what is getting kicked out because more oxygen will be kicked out and more carbon dioxide will be taken in because of the algae on the pond. So what they did was they looked at the gas levels in Enceladus's plumes and simulations where methogens could thrive consistently produced carbon dioxide and methane levels that matched Cassini's observations. Whereas the non-biological simulations, they didn't match the Cassini observations. So in the ones where all these microbes survived and kicked out a bunch of carbon dioxide and methane, they did run some numbers and it said, okay, they should have X amount kicked out. And then they played about with other variables where microbes didn't survive and they'd be like, okay, so if they didn't survive, what would be kicked out of these plumes? How would the known elements at the bottom of the ocean, how would they be kicked out of the plumes? And they didn't match Cassini observations. So while there isn't direct evidence of us going up there, taking a sample, looking under a microscope and going, hmm, yes, there's something moving there. That is definitely life. This mathematical simulation is a very strong indication that there could be microscopic life in the subsurface ocean of Enceladus. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. That's quite promising, isn't it? It is. I like the way you say they simulate life on Enceladus. Is it a load of people going around going, it's a bit cold? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask, is it a bunch of little microbes with diamonds above their heads? You had to make sure that they had a fridge and enough bins in that in the room. Uh, I'm talking about The Sims, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I picked that up. I didn't play The Sims, but uh, yeah, I've, I'm aware of it. And put people in swimming pools and then f- fill it up and stuff like that. Or You delete the ladder and then they just don't get out. As you would do with a ladderless swimming pool. Because it's a computer game and computer games have glitches and bugs, because it's a computer game about humans, when patches are released and bug updates are released, there's patch notes and some of the patch notes are absolutely hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Sims can no longer have a baby with the Grim Reaper. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's delightfully stupid stuff like that. Yeah, I did see a video on someone invited friends over to, they built a glass house and then just invited friends over to their house but didn't let them out the front door so they just had a, a glass house full of people and they all they all just sort of stood there having a part this continuous party that went on for years because they, they, <laughs> they'll just keep chatting to each other and never sort of tire or their family will never come and looking for them or anything that's what's going on in Celadus. Uh, yeah <laughs> so scientists have run some simulations and some mathematical models on the subsurface oceans of Enceladus to see what life could thrive. And in the simulations where life survived, the gases they kicked out of this little icy moon match the gases that have been found by Cassini. So it's a strong indication that there could be life there. So I would like to talk to you 
about Triton and a fascinating moon, a likely ocean world and a compelling destination as this scientific article puts it. So some scientific papers will just be, oh we did this study, we found this and some of them will be quite a bit of digging and research and will come up as like a proposal being like we should do this scientific endeavour for these reasons and one of which has come to surface about Triton, the largest moon of Neptune and also the largest retrograde moon of the solar system. What does retrograde mean? Uh, oh, you're asking me, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I forget things between each episode, but uh, <laughs> for the purposes of audience participation, it means it's a moon whose orbit goes against the spin of the planet. Yes, exactly. So our moon around the Earth is in a prograde orbit. It goes in the same direction as the planet's spin, whereas a lot of the outer moons of Jupiter and Saturn are in retrograde, so they go at the opposite direction of the planet's spin. Now, Triton is a really fascinating moon because it's really big and it's quite close to Neptune. And the fact that it's in a retrograde orbit indicates that it's been captured, which is quite something, because that will have mean that it was like a rogue dwarf planet that somehow left the outer solar system and started migrating inwards only to be captured by Neptune in its orbit. This kind of like a, uh, you know, a baseball player catches a baseball and the baseball is significantly smaller than the baseball player. Is this like a baseball player catching another baseball player one-handed? <laughs> It would be like a baseball player capturing a medicine ball. <laughs> right. So, it well, it was a very disruptive capture. So if you look at the inner moons of Neptune, it's hypothesised that it was actually one or two bigger moons, probably about the size of Rhea or Ceres. Not as big as our own moon, but pretty chunky and enough to reach something called hydrostatic equilibrium, which is where they form a sphere as opposed to just like a random scabby space potato like Phobos's. So Triton, when it was captured, it will have disrupted the orbits of these two bigger moons and will have actually torn them apart and it will have caused them to like shatter and break and maybe crash into each other and form the smaller moons we see today. And not only that, those moons that I've just mentioned, those would be something called second generation moons. It's thought that this disruption lasted even longer than that and caused third generation moons based on like impacts. Like there's a, a moon called Proteus, which has a big crater on it. And it's thought that the tiny Neptunian moon of Hippocamp came from that impact, which was aided by the disruptive powers of Triton. Yeah, I mean, that's how we all make next generations by smashing the previous generations <laughs> into each other until they break and they're offshoots. Yes. Build into a new entities. <laughs> My parents and their generation doing a damn fine good job of it at the moment. <laughs> Triton was discovered, I think, in the 1800s through various telescopic methods, but it was only photographed up close by Voyager and its surface is very smooth, very much like the surface of Pluto is, like when those images came back, like there was clearly rocky terrain, but some nice smooth canyons, which indicate that there's some activity gone on there that's kept the surface smooth from either lava, cryovolcanoes, or oceans, like sublimation, which is just a fancy word for melting. So it looks like something is going on on Triton, and it indicates that there is a subsurface ocean, or evidence that there was once one, or there 
there could still be one, based on these photos that were beamed back from Voyager when it flew past it in the 80s, I think it was. But we have only this encounter, and this paper is a proposal to go back because we've sent Cassini up to the moon of Titan, we sent New Horizons to go past several other moons, we've got Juno going around the Galilean moons, but what makes Triton so significant is that objects formed in the outer solar system, especially if they could be an ocean world, have a very different chemistry from the Galilean satellites because they are going to have much more nitrogen compounds and those lead to something called organics, which building blocks of life, which is quite incredible. So what this paper is, it's just like one scientific compelling argument to please can we go back? Is it please can we go back and look for life? That's one of the reasons, but also to study how these particular moons formed. Because Triton didn't form around Neptune, it was captured by Neptune. It formed in the depths of the solar system and was captured. But how? How did something this big get captured by Neptune? Which in itself is a big gas giant, but did it have enough uh, gravitational friction to slow it down? Did it have what's called a gas envelope, which is just this huge atmosphere that slows down a moon to the stable orbit that it's in today? There's so much, so many questions that we don't know. If you scroll down in the show notes and I'll put up uh, a link in the show notes to this image now and I'll put it up on screen on the YouTube channel. There is this little graph that shows our current knowledge as in kind of like a, would you call this a spider? Oh no, it's like a web chart. Radar plot. It's, it's a radar plot. So we have several points on it. It's like one of those personality things where it's just like, are you grumpy? <laughs> are you like ambitious? And you <laughs> like those, uh, I'm going to swear now, those business charts. It's like that, but for something actually scientific and useful for a change. I do like the idea of the grumpy, ambitious chart. <laughs> I, I want to meet a very, very grumpy but ambitious person. That's me! Is it? <laughs> well, you see, you're, you're far too happy and jovial on this real proper grump, but who genuinely wants to, like, climb Everest or oh, something. Oh, so Ed Edmund Hillary, notorious grumpy pants. Yeah, it's just like, oh, every step is oh, it's a bit cold. <laughs> I'm tired. It's not enough oxygen. It's a bit high, this. Oh, God, can we go <sighs> home yet? Yeah, but they carry on anyway because they're just so <laughs> ambitious. <laughs> Uh, well, Mrs. Lunatic can attest for that. Um, going around a fancy museum with me is like going around with a toddler. Oh, right. Just Are we like... in the gift shop yet? Can I have a chocolate? <laughs> Just dragging their feet like, ugh. I maintain history is made of nothing but pots. And you go to a garden <laughs> centre and you go to a museum and it's basically the same thing, only the pots are in better condition in a garden centre. Like I remember going to the Natural History Museum or the British History Museum or something and they had all these different sections. And because I was fascinated with North Korea for a while, I was like, oh, I'd love to know about the Korea section and like the history of Korea. So I went there and it was just pots, just pots painted. And then like lots of words underneath being like, oh yes, this is from 400 AD. It's just a pot. It's exactly the same as the Greek history section, the Roman history section, although at least that had the decency to throw in a token sword every now and then. Well, I think you should go and study history as an undergraduate for three years, another year as a master's, three years for a PhD, and then you'll know the difference between different types of pot. You know, that's seven years of your life, but well spent when you can go to a museum and say, actually, that pot's different. 
Yeah, I'll become a right pothead. <laughs> That's basically what historians are. Potheads. They, well, no, they just know the difference between different types of pots and a sword. The whole, the final exam is just, is this a pot or is this a sword? <laughs> <laughs> All the history students have just like, line up the word to the image. Sword. Mm, draw, draw along. Any history students that are listening to this, first off, why are you listening to this? It's a moon-based podcast. Second of all, you're probably screaming, yeah, but... Moons are just space rocks going around a planet. They're all the same and it doesn't matter. And I will agree with you with some of these moons, like the tiny moons of Jupiter, but others are pretty fascinating. And I'm pretty sure some pots are more fascinating than others. Yeah, I mean, you are picking a hard fight to win, saying my specialist subject of moons, which look by and large incredibly similar to the uh, untrained eye, are more interesting than pots, which at least you can have a picture on and you say, well, that's a butterfly. And that's a, uh, a deer being hunted by three men with spears. I, c- I could tell the difference between those two parts, but yeah, show show me a moon and another moon. Like, yeah, good luck. That was actually going to be part of our live show. Who's that poker moon? That was it. Yeah, guess the moon by the silhouette. <laughs> it was just a perfect uh, sphere. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't think that one through. Well, it was meant to be a one-off joke, but then I got carried away and I made loads of them. Yeah, because also in Pokemon, they introduce, I don't know, Charizard, and they have an adventure of Charizard, and then it goes to the break. Who's this uh, Pokemon? And it's blatantly Charizard, because they've primed everyone to know it's Charizard. Where I think you primed everyone to think it was one moon, and they just did a completely different one that was like nothing to do with yeah. anything. Also, it's Charizard. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> We, we hyped up this magic radar chart before. Just, just quickly on that, with the various spokes of it, you've got, like, the current knowledge of certain moons, such as Enceladus, Europa, and Titan, and you have uh, something called Access, which is the one-way transfer of materials from the ocean to the surface, what knowledge we have on the solvent water. And on this map, you have our current knowledge, and it's like a tiny little radar in the middle, and knowledge after next mission... And it's just like the nice thing that you show in a meeting and it's taking up the whole chart being like, this is what we could know. If you just invest billions into another Voyager mission, we could know all this. Yeah, I hate radar charts. Um, (laughs) shall Shall I do my I hate radar charts rant? Please do. So GCSE maths will say how to draw a graph. And if you've got a discrete variable like, what's your favourite ice cream? We asked 20 people. Then you're told to draw a bar chart where you say chocolate, vanilla, strawberry or whatever. If it's something that's continuous, like number of people who are of this height, so 1 metre 81, 1 metre 82, 1 metre 83, you draw it as a line graph because you can go between two points, so 1 metre 81 and 1 metre 82, and go to 1 metre 81 and a half, and get a rough ass, because that's a meaningful number in the middle, because it's kind of, you broadly know, if you draw a line between those two points, neighbouring it, that that's how many people-ish will be of that height. So that's meaningful, as opposed to doing a sort of block bar chart, or it's not as meaningful statistic to say, you know, draw halfway between chocolate and vanilla, and (laughs) that's... (laughs) That's how much you get. Because, I mean, yes, you can mix chocolate and vanilla, and yes, maybe some people did say it was their favourite, but you've got all these arbitrary combinations that you could do, and it's more about how you range the bars on a chart. So 
So yes, the chocolate-vanilla combination would only exist if you happened to put chocolate and vanilla next to each other. So you were just told, use bars, not lines. Also, the area under the, the graph means something if you do use lines, or indeed bars. So you can work out the area and divide it by sort of one unit, and that's how many people like chocolate. If you can't be bothered to read all the way over to the y-axis, but for some reason... You, you don't want to do the more complicated method. No, you want to do a really complicated, oh, work out the area and divide it by <laughs> one or divided by the unit. Or if you have you know, the speed of a car over time, you can calculate underneath the curve. And if you colour all that in, you've worked out the distance. So you can mean something from the charts. But the thing is, if I take a radar chart, they're using lines, which means, all right, so the interpolation between two of them has to mean something. So the access and solvent water, does that mean something? Halfway between surface ocean exchange and longevity, does that mean something? Well, apparently, yes. If I extrapolate that and, and I take the area, which is the area of a triangle, because they, they're all in triangles, and the, the area of a triangle is like some weird calculation using trigonometry based on yeah the angle of the centre bit from the line. I can't even remember it, but it's, it's just the weirdest thing that this means nothing, basically. Yeah, it's just... It's just for business meetings. Yeah, you are presenting me with some information that means absolutely nothing, but it, it makes it more interesting than if you took this six-pointed axes and just put them as a bar chart with six bars, which you should do, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Do, do, do you know what it is? It's like the bubble chart. It's like this. It's just pretty pictures that will hopefully get them more money to go to Neptune and... I frankly want them to go back to Neptune, so radar charts all the way if it means it. So, to end the foreign moon news, and this is going to be very, very, very foreign moon news, the birth of a moon has been witnessed for the first time. So what does this mean? Congratulations, Mrs. Moon. Uh, well congr done. Congratulations. It's <laughs> a Galilean moon. Oh, £624,000. <laughs> 24 ounces. There is evidence, direct evidence, it has been photographed of a moon forming around an exoplanet of a distant star. Now, I'll link the photo in the show notes and I'll put it up on screen now. And this photo was taken using the ALMA telescope. And ALMA stands for Akatama Large Millimeter Array. And I think the Akatama is the Akatama Desert where this large array of telescopes is based. So it discovered this star a while ago called PDS-70, and then afterwards it found two exo-orbiting it, one of which is PDS-70b, PDS-70c. So I'll just call them 70b and 70c from now on, just to make life a little easier. Around 70c, in this latest photo, if you zoom in on this photo, you can see a cloud forming around it and that cloud is the exomoon now a lot of articles that are sharing this they have this image and when it says like the birth of a moon has been witnessed for the first time and you see that image and you think that dot is the actual image that bright dot in the middle of the ring but no that's the planet you need to zoom in and look at the fuzzy cloud around it and like a another dot around next to that bright <laughs> dot that's the moon so it is quite misleading thankfully there is a really really good description of it on the wicked commons page and just now because that description was so good i was like i need to credit the author of this 
who did it? And it's N3. Hey, well done, N3. <laughs> so thank you, N3, for providing me with such a useful description because I would have thought it was just that bright spot, but then common sense kind of kicked in. It was like, well, hang on a minute. If that's the circumstellar disk, that can't be a moon. That must be the planet. So it took me several steps back to actually figure it out. What this image is, a star in the middle and a bright disk around it, and to the right of the star, there is a bright dot. That bright dot is the planet. And the reason there is like this gap between the disk and the star and the planet is because one of these planets has actually cleared and actually, and to use the term, gobbled up all of the matter that's there. So there's two planets in that gap. The rest of that disk could well form a planet or several planets or even just an asteroid belt of some kind and that and what we're witnessing here is the birth of a solar system and the birth of a moon in this hazy cloud that's orbiting the exoplanet PDS 70C. That is absolutely spectacular. And what is quite incredible, I think this star is, is 5.4 million years old. Now considering our sun is 4.5 billion years old. This is a very, very young star, so we're just witnessing the start of a solar system. Do you reckon there's someone on that moon now recording a podcast, <laughs> looking at us through their exotelescopes, looking at the birth of our planet and going, wow, well done, N4, because uh, that's, that's what they're called <laughs> in that version of reality. <laughs> And it will take another 500 billion years or whatever before the, the sort of podcast cross. Okay, yeah, if you're listening, N4, get in touch <laughs> with PDS70C version of Lunatic. Or probably be the letter down in the alphabet, so it would be Moonatic. Oh, it's so perfect. Lunatic and Moonatic, we can join forces. And then I'll have another person like me, so then I'll double the output and I'll be able to get out one video every month as opposed to every two months. This may not be how space works. <laughs> we, are, we are speculating. Uh, but in summary, the birth of a moon has been witnessed for the first time and it is absolutely incredible seeing this solar system start to form. And there's going to be so many more of them out there, we just haven't photographed them or discovered them yet. Is it just me or does it look like the Eye of Sauron? <laughs> it does look a bit like that. And so we end the podcast with the ongoing feature and the next moon is, and in this case it is the Jovian moon of Ilara, which belongs to the Himalaya group. Now, Ilara is a prograde satellite of Jupiter, like the other moons of the Himalaya group, and it was discovered in 1905. This moon is 43 kilometers in radius, so that means it's about uh, 85 kilometers across, which is pretty big, but not huge compared to some of the other moons of Jupiter, like Ganymede and Io. But this moon is still the eighth largest moon of Jupiter, at just 85 kilometers across. That's, that's walkable, almost. It's 52 miles. Actually, it is walkable, 52 miles, because there used to be a, um, a walking challenge at Manchester University called Boggle. I forget what it stands for. And the challenge was to walk 50 miles. So it is, it is walkable. You could actually walk around the, around the circumference of it. And that's just an estimate. It could actually be a lot smaller than that. But yeah, this is the eighth largest moon of Jupiter. Uh, and it's thought that it might be a captured asteroid, although if it is in its own orbital group, it's more likely to have arised from an impact on the largest member, which is Himalaya. So it could be a fragment of Himalaya that got 
shot off into space and caught in Jupiter's orbit. So this moon is 11.7 million kilometers away from Jupiter. It takes 260 days to complete an orbit. And as all the other moons of Jupiter, it is named after one of Zeus's daughters, I think. Oh, no way, I was wrong. Elara was a consort and gave birth to a giant called Tychos. I was wrong, sorry about that. Let's hope Zeus isn't listening. Ah, uh, yes. Almighty Zeus, please forgive me for getting one of your several hundred children slightly wrong. And do you have uh, any questions about Ilara? Yeah, I mean, is that it? Is this one of those moons where it's sort of a dot on a sheet, so we don't have any funky close-up pictures of it? Sadly, yes, that that is the case. Although I do find it quite incredible that this 80-kilometer moon was discovered in 1905. I think that's quite interesting. I think we've covered this before, but obviously very good at telescopes and squinting. <laughs> oh, it was actually uh, imaged up close by the New Horizons probe as it went past. So we do have one blurry close-up image of it, but the majority of moons that we'll probably be talking about for a while are dots on screens. So what might happen is, and the next moon in turns into a bit of a request feature, which I know one or two people have been requesting a certain moon, so we might turn it into that. Request a moon. Yeah, you can always do that. Yeah, because moons of Jupiter. I'm just going to look at what the next few moons are, because I think we've talked about all of the interesting ones. Yep, all the next ones are just going to be dots on the screen. So I think <laughs> we'll start talking or taking requests for the more interesting ones, even though up soon will be one of the moons that I named, which is Euphemy. Oh, well, we've got to focus on that one. So... All of these moons so far have had a nickname. What are you going to give the one for Ilara? The nice sounding dot. The nice sounding dot. Okay, so I think we'll start taking requests for And The Next Moon Is, where you request a moon that you want us to talk about. Uh, failing that, the next moon we'll talk about will be Dyer, where we do actually have something to talk about because I made a video about that one, so we can talk about that one for a bit. But failing that, if you guys have a request, then send it to us in a tweet, which is at... I am a lunatic or send me an email which is at I am a lunatic at gmail.com unless you've got anything else to add Rick uh, no no I'm, I'm looking forward to the recipe though <laughs> yeah stay tuned for the high-pitched recipe uh, and thank you very much for listening and we shall catch you soon goodbye Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Step one, heat oven to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, butter two 20 centimeter sandwich tins and line with non-stick baking paper. In a large bowl, beat 20 grams of caster sugar, 20 grams of softened butter, four beaten eggs, 20 grams of self-rising flour, one teaspoon of baking powder, two tablespoons of milk, beat them together until you have a smooth, soft batter. Step three, divide this mixture into tins, smooth the surface with a spatula or the back of a spoon. Step four, bake for 20 minutes until golden and the cake springs back when pressed. Step five, turn on a cooling rack and leave to cool completely. To make the filling, go to the shops, buy it yourself. Bye.